Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of the Cersei Institute Podcast Network is brought to you by our friends at New College Franklin, where they respect the sacrifices you have made as parents and teachers to educate your children in wisdom and virtue. But how do you sustain this during the college years? Through a robust exploration of the great books and the seven liberal arts in an environment of rich conversation, shared life, and spiritual discipleship, New College continues to build on the foundation that you have laid at home. New College students grow in wisdom and see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Take the next step in your education and join the conversation in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee. Come for a preview weekend or schedule a visit at your convenience. You can learn more at newcollegefranklin.org. That's newcollegefranklin.org. Welcome back to the Commons. I'm your host, Brian Phillips, uh, here part of the Cersei Podcast Network. Um, it is my privilege to be joined uh, again for the second time uh, by Keith McCurdy. Uh, Keith McCurdy is a frequent conference speaker. He's the president of Total Life Counseling and uh, has about over 25 years of experience in Christian counseling. Um, his practice is based there in Roanoke, Virginia, where he is also a board member of a Christian classical school uh, his, where his children attend. And um, so, uh, Keith, this is the second time that you have joined me, and uh, it's taken us a while to figure out part two of this and to get it scheduled. But let me say, first of all, thank you again for making time in your schedule to join me on the podcast today. Well, thank you, Brian. It's a it's a real pleasure to be able to get back together with you and chat about these things. I know that you and I both love the idea of <clears throat> looking at better ways to raise our kids, so I'm very excited about it. Well, I am too. Uh, I have to say that um, it, when we first met back in Richmond, Virginia, uh, mm-hmm. I think it was fall of last year, um, and we started talking about some of these things related to parenting. I'd sat in on a, a workshop of yours and was just really blown away. I, I thought, okay, this is a guy that I want to get to know and, and talk to more about this. And then we had the first podcast, um, which I really enjoyed. But the response to that podcast was was just overwhelming. Um, the response that we got here at Cersei, and I think you did as well, are still hearing some mm-hmm. positive feedback on that. Um, so we wanted to follow up, and um, so we're going to um, not talk about all of the same things, but sort of expand on some of those first ideas that we talked about um, with raising sturdy children. So in that first podcast, sure. that that was the theme, um, building or raising sturdy children, and that was a topic that um, that parents – uh, at least with the podcast, we're greatly interested in, and you've been talking about for a while. So let's expand on that a bit. And I want to begin by asking, um, why do you think that topic of developing sturdy children resonates with parents so strongly today? Why Why that, um, well, adjective, I guess. Uh, uh, why do you think that's such a great need? Well, I think, you know, I... 
I've been surprised at the response as well when I go out and speak and, and folks really gravitate towards that idea of sturdiness. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the, you know, I call it the grand experiment, self-esteem and, and what I call the happy doctrine has kind of failed. And we now start, we really see it everywhere now, you know, whether it's in the increase of psychiatric meds or the, the lack of young adults being able to thrive in college and the workplace, the invention of the whole, gosh, the, the funniest one, the safe space phenomenon that we hear about all the time in colleges, mm. um, you know, basically our children's general inability to handle life stressors that 30 years ago we wouldn't even complain about. I think we're seeing that more clearly these days. And so when I speak to parents and they, and they hear the, the idea of, of sturdiness, uh, you know, the idea that we want our children to learn to struggle well to be capable young adults, uh, that makes sense. Because when we look around today, so much in our environment says our children are fragile. Uh, now, 20 years ago, I don't think we would have said that. You know, 20 years ago, we were caught up in the whole, um, you know, everybody gets a trophy, everybody gets an award, whether they've just shown up or not. Uh, and we that really consumed us. But now we're seeing the, the result of that, and the result is not good. You know, I often uh, look at different research, and there was a researcher a handful of years ago, I think it was uh, Baumrind out of Florida State, and did or did research on self-esteem and looked at the highest self-rated population uh, on self-esteem. And what came out was that it was uh, young adult violent offenders. Hmm. They rated themselves the highest on self-esteem scales. And, you know, on the one hand, we, we think about that and we're shocked. But on the other hand, it makes sense. They all think they're innocent. They all think they're they're entitled to whatever they did. Uh, or whatever they were trying to do or get, whether robbing someone or committing a crime. Uh, but that's just one indicator that where we have gone with self-esteem, this over-focus on self and, and keeping ourselves happy, pursuing whatever impulse we have in the moment, uh, you know, it's totally backfired. Hmm. And I think parents realize that now. They're starting to realize that as they see children that leave high school, go to college, and can't handle just the basic things, studying on their own or living with a roommate or, you know, any number of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I think we're realizing we, we took a wrong turn. Right. Right. Um, now as we've talked a bit since the last podcast, just kind of following up with each other and, sure. and exploring some of these other things. And one of the things that, that came up in some of our phone conversation was the need for struggle. Um, yeah. and, and honestly, we all have it pretty good nowadays, as you talked about, but, um, mm -hmm. one of the things that, that you, um, mentioned in our conversation is that having that kind of easy life is not necessarily a good thing. So, so can you elaborate on that a little bit? Why do you think it's important for children, especially to struggle at times and for them to learn how to struggle? Sure. Sure. I think that's a great question. You know, when, when we struggle, we learn, um, we learn the nature of three key things. The first thing we learn the nature of is struggle itself. Uh, we, we begin to, to get a perspective about, you know, is this really a big deal in life or is this not? You know, is the thing I'm facing something that I need to run away from or not? And so it's, it really challenges our perspective. You know, currently, in today's world, we have gotten to the point where anything that's difficult or a struggle we automatically believe is bad. Hmm. Well, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, uh, we often viewed a struggle or a difficult situation as an opportunity. And it's a complete reversal of how we look at things today. I, I often tell the story of a fellow uh, I worked with years ago. Uh, his name was Joe, and it's about perspective. And, and Joe, he's long, long since died, uh, but this was probably he tells me a story when he was a kid, probably in the 20s and 30s, uh, 20s and 30s, and he would spend the summers with his grandparents. And he gave me a, a story about getting up one morning and having to go plow with his grandfather. And he said he didn't know how big the field was. He just knew it was huge. And they would hitch up the team, and they would hook up the plowshare and start plowing. And one day, as they were going along, uh, something broke on the plowshare. And uh, his granddad's response to that was, well, looks like we got to get this fixed. So they unhitch the team and put the team away and hook up the horse and buggy and put the plowshare in the buggy and ride the buggy an hour to town. 
and go to the blacksmith, and the blacksmith, you know, the modern-day welder, mm-hmm. uh, is pounding and, 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 and reshaping things. And all Joe remembers is sparks flying everywhere. Uh, but eventually they get whatever broke fixed. Mm-hmm. And then they get back in the buggy, and they travel another hour back home. They get home, they unhitch the horse team, put them out in the field, they hitch up uh, the mules or whatever they were using to plow with, they carry the plowshare, put it in the field, and they plow into darkness. And he said he remembered clearly coming in that night, and they're sitting there, and and Grandma had reheated dinner for them, and she looked at him and said, well, boys, how was your day? And his granddad looked at him and said, it was a pretty good day, wasn't it, son? (laughs) And, 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 And that... That clarity of life was that our day was not based on what we faced, but how we responded to it. Huh. And, and, and we've lost that. You know, the, the granddad's view was, you know what, sometimes life's difficult. Sometimes things happen, but we are equipped to deal with it. Or if not, we will learn how to deal with it. And that is so not the perspective we have today. You know, the perspective we have today, think about this. You get up in the morning and you can't find your cell phone. And it's a catastrophe. Hmm. <laughs> and yet, right. 100 years ago, 50 years ago, unbelievable difficulties and struggles would happen. And we just took it as, well, we got to deal with it. And so the first thing we learn with struggle is is kind of the nature of struggle. And, and we begin to put it in a correct perspective. I spoke recently to a school um here in a school in Richmond, and spoke during the day to three different groups. And the group in the middle of the day that I spoke to were high school students. And I, I told them the story of Joe, and they all laughed. <clears throat> and I said, well, let, let's, let's see how you all are doing with this perspective. And I told them, um, one of my grandmothers used to say, it's not really an emergency unless your head's on fire or you're bleeding out of your eyeball. <laughs> and uh, it always made me, when I asked my grandmother what happened in her childhood, but <laughs> All right. <laughs> have that <Yeah>. example. <laughs> but uh but and I ask him, I say, now using that using that definition of a of a problem or a struggle or a crisis, how many of you have had a crisis this week? Well, none of them raised their hand. I said, How many of you have had a crisis in the last month? None of them raised their hand. We got out mm-hmm. to about a year and at that level, that definition of a crisis, none of them had had really had one. And then my question to them was, it was about 100, 150 students. I said, well, how many of you have acted like you had a crisis today? And they all raised their hands. Yeah. And I said, mm-hmm. that's the struggle of perspective. And, and when we engage struggle, we begin to challenge, you know, just how serious things are. You know, are we making a big deal out of something when really we don't need to? And it's that whole idea that, you know, learning to struggle well means learning to do the right things, even when we don't feel like it, even when we don't want to. Um, the second thing that struggle helps us do is that we learn about ourselves. Uh, we learn that God has given us the ability to manage the world he has given us. And that is so foreign to many children today. I deal with children in my office all the time that are anxious about the littlest things. They don't feel like they are equipped to handle anything. They don't feel like they know how to do anything. And when they face a challenge, uh, they're eaten up with self-doubt. But when we learn to struggle, we realize, you know what? I I can do something about this. Mm -hmm. And if I don't know how to do it, I can figure out how to do it. And if I need help, I can get help. And so when we struggle, we start learning that God has made us to actually manage the world that he's given us. Um, you know, one of the examples I, I will give with that with parents is I'll talk about the difference between a kid in 1940 that has lived a life where, as you said, things were not so easy versus a kid today. And so a kid in 1940 who has grown up learning how to do all kinds of things, learning how to do chores from a very early age, uh, you know, engaging the world without technology. Well, think of them having a, a girlfriend, think of a teenage male. And he has his first girlfriend, and, uh, and then something happens, and she breaks up with him. Well, what's the thought process in his head? The thought process in his head typically is, you know, I, I don't like this. I'll get over it, though. I'll be okay. There, there are more girls out there. Well, if we look at the child today that has been given a trophy for everything, that has constantly been kept happy, that has not learned to struggle with almost anything, they have their first girlfriend 
and then that relationship ends. What is going through their head? Well, that child often, uh, oftentimes is suicidal. Mm-hmm. And so there's a very different outcome uh, or result in how we view ourselves if we allow ourselves to engage struggle. We see ourselves very differently. And then the third thing that struggle does is it teaches us to value others. Um, I'll give you a great example. My son's currently working on his Eagle Scout project. And in the course of three or four days, he's moved about six tons of dirt and about three tons of gravel. I mean, it's just Mm -hmm. by hand, by shovel. And the guys that have come to help him are other scouts that have done Eagle projects. And they have no problem coming to help him because they have had help on their difficult tasks. And as they have learned to struggle through things, it gives them a view of what others are going through with struggle as well. And so when we struggle, we have empathy to others who struggle. When we struggle, we realize sometimes we need help or encouragement from those around us, and sometimes wisdom from those around us. And so we begin to value relationships versus, you know, all three of these categories, what we learn about the struggle, what we learn about ourselves and valuing others versus the self-esteem approach, which has all been, it's all about me being happy. It's all about what I want. And many times it's at the sacrifice of what anybody else wants. You know, it's a very Mm -hmm. different view of life uh, when we accept the reality that struggle is a good thing. So those are the three things that stick out to me the most about why, you know, why struggle is so important. And, and of course, we can elaborate on all of those, but that's a, a general way I look at it. Yeah, that's that's very helpful. I, um, there was a comment that you made that almost seemed just kind of offhand that, that stuck with me, um, where uh, you mentioned that struggle does help create perspective. Um, mm-hmm. And... and but perspective takes that takes time and it takes contemplation right. as well. You know, you have to actually stop right. and, and think about that. And, and of course we, we live in a time um, we're going to talk about technology in a little, a little bit, but um, sure. we live in a time when contemplation and, and patience, you know, <laughs> um, we're, right. we're not very good at those. Um, right. I, I can still remember just to throw in uh, a story from my own uh, childhood that resonates with this. I, yeah. I was uh, 14 and my first job um, was uh, helping a, uh, helping a farmer down the road from where we lived uh, baling hay. Hmm. It was when um, they were still doing the square bales and, you know, I'm on the back of this flatbed truck stacking hay bales, um, you know, that are being tossed at me from both directions. And, um, <laughs> and I, I remember, I mean, it's in North Carolina, so, it was, um, oh my goodness, it was probably 95 degrees, not counting, you know, the, uh, the heat index. Um, and I'm wearing long sleeves, jeans, boots, gloves, and all this. And it, so it was, <laughs> it was loads of fun. Having 50 pound bales of hay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thrown at me from both directions. And then, mm-hmm. you know, we had, yeah. uh, had to get them stacked in the barn, you know, when it's, uh, when night's coming and all this, but, um, I still remember, right. um, when I came home from that first day of doing that, um, you know, my mom was asking how my day went and my first response, you know, I mean, I was typical teenager, I guess. Um, my first Mm -hmm. response was just to kind of complain, you know, about how hot it was, how hard the work was. And and my mom just kind of laughed and said, well, it's, it's good for you. And I I said, uh, how was this good for me? And I remember her response because it seemed so mysterious to me at the time. I don't think I understood her response until years and years later. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I said, how is it good for me? And she just said, you'll see. And that was it. And yeah. that was the end of the conversation. Yeah. And and she's right. I did see, but it took time. And it takes, looking back on that now, right. it takes some contemplation to see. That, okay, now I now I get it. You know, now as a dad um, with four kids and you know, in work and all this, it, um, that struggle does create perspective. It does create appreciation, yeah. but sometimes, sometimes the results aren't immediate. And I, I bring up that story, right. not, that's not bragging on myself. Cause as I said, I was whining about it. Um, mm-hmm. but I bring that up because I think sometimes as parents, we need to remember that, that, that the perseverance, uh, the perspective, the, 
the maturity, the sturdiness that we hope is developing mm-hmm. in our children, it's not always evident right off the bat. Sometimes it takes a well, long right. time for that to really come about. Yeah, I tell parents, raising our children, it's a short-term investment for a long-term goal, for a long-term product. Hmm. And and we have a, in the, when you look at the entirety of a child or young adult or adult's life, we have a certain amount of time to invest the right things and then watch them cook for a while. Hmm. And, and the thing is, if we know that, we don't get so wrapped up in the moment of any one experience as a parent, uh, but also as we know that it, it gets really exciting as we watch it cook and grow. And I mean, it's really, really something. I, I'll give you an example. Um, like I said, my son's working on his Eagle project right now, and we went out to one of the sites where we had to move, and I'm one of his workers along with a bunch of other scouts. Uh, we had to move in this one site. We had a hillside. It was approximately four tons of dirt. But it was mixed in with crush, crush and run. So when you tried to shovel it, it was hard, almost like concrete. And so they're out there with, um, with you know, mattocks and, and shovels and chopping away at this for several days. And I remembered uh, one of the moms came out and she said, oh, this is horrible. Why on earth are they doing this? This is, you know, <laughs> why, they need to get machinery in here. They, and I almost had to look at the mom and say, you need to go home. Be, be, because... <laughs> She was not grabbing the whole perspective in the moment because she was inserted into the middle of it. Right. These young men understood this is a process. Uh, They've gone so far in scouting that they understand we engage in things that are difficult and hard, and there will be an outcome. Well, the great thing was once they got this whole lot cleared and forms put in for concrete and stuff – they're like taking pictures and sending it to their buddies on online. Look at what we have done. You know, so the struggle is, is worth it. You know, I think of Romans 5, it talks about struggle leads to perseverance, perseverance to proven character, and proven character to hope. And one of the ways I, I put that in, I reference that is, you know, our struggle sets in motion a process of perseverance, and by its nature, that takes time. And through that, it's sculpting our character. And ultimately, then, through that character and development, Mm -hmm. we begin having hope, meaning in any situation, we can see beyond the current difficulty. You know, we, we can see beyond the current struggle or challenge to we, we know there's more coming down the road because we've been through that process. And, you know, that is something that is much, much more difficult to teach today uh, yeah. because life is easier. So right. I, I love your story, man. That, that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Well, sometimes I love it too. Um, no, <laughs> not at the time, at the time. Yeah, not so much. Um, but right. this, this need for struggle, we've, we've talked about it, um, I guess, primarily in, in, uh, the context of chores, relationships, uh, I'm sorry, uh, sure. responsibilities around the home. Um, but how does this apply when it comes to school? Because this is another area where as parents, we have difficulty letting our children struggle. Yeah, we really do. You know, I speak to um, uh, school systems and I speak to faculty administrators. You know, I, I always joke with them about how many of you get emails over the weekends when Johnny has to do Latin over the weekend. <laughs> and they all raise their hands, you know. Right. I mean, one of the things that, that teachers deal with, faculty members, administration, all the time, is this notion that our children should only have, you know, 28 and a half minutes of homework every night. And they can never, you know, never disrupt their other activities and never disrupt life, never have to do things over the weekend. And that's an over-exaggeration. But there's this perspective that school should really fit neatly into all these other things that our family or our children want to do. Well, the problem with that is that our children would learn nothing if that was the case. You know, school in and of itself is a process of struggle, a process of learning and we know the best learning is done under a little bit of pressure. If it was all easy, we really wouldn't be learning anything. And um, so in the school system, I guess I look at it from two angles. You know, one angle is that from the, the, that of the teacher and the faculty um, about how do we make sure that we are providing developmentally appropriate challenges. 
you know, we need to make sure that we are challenging our students to stretch and reach. Mm-hmm. But then from the parents' side of things, we have to understand that part of our job, it's not just the school partnering with us, but we truly need to partner with the school. And that's not something we always hear. You know, we always hear about schools partnering with parents, especially, you know, Christian classical schools, private schools. Uh, but parents really need to partner with the schools. And, and the way parents do that is by supporting this idea of healthy struggle in the classroom. You know, when I go and speak, um, the model I, I recommend to school systems when I come in is let me speak to faculty administration in the morning. Let me give them some common information and common language about the idea of struggle. Let me speak to students in the middle of the day and give them an understanding of perspective about struggle. Basically, as I told one group, so y'all can stop being whiners. Hmm. And, and then to parents in the evening, and I tell parents, here's what I've told faculty. Here's how they can best partner with you in the raising of your kids by allowing them to struggle appropriately. And then what I do with parents is I give them that common language that struggle is a good thing. And you want the school, in essence, partnering with with you in providing educational and academic struggle. And what I tell teachers is this. I say, if you do this, then parents will call you or they will send an email. And instead of backpedaling and apologizing and trying to come up with a defense as to why Johnny has some Latin to do over the weekend, be done with that. Lean in and tell the parent, thank you so much for calling. Let me tell you what we know. And what we know is that healthy struggle is the engine to growth and maturity. And then share with the parent, we know this is truth, and this is why we engage your child that way. And we are so glad you called because we know this is in line with what you want for your children. And the crazy thing is when that communication happens to the majority of parents, Mm -hmm. either they're supportive or they don't know what to say. But that's okay Mm -hmm. because then parents start paying better attention to what's really going on. But we've got to get over the hurdle in the academic world that – we shouldn't be allowing our kids to struggle. They shouldn't have extra homework sometimes, or they shouldn't have a hard time dealing with certain uh, subjects. You know, I deal with, fortunately and unfortunately, being on a school board, uh, I, I see the good and bad of this. I see parents that, you know, have an expectation that their children should be making A's in everything. Hmm. Well, yeah. that's not practical. It really is not. You know, I, I've met very few children that are in a rigorous school that really should be making A's in everything. And yet that's an expectation some parents have. Other parents have an expectation at times that, well, school should always be easy. Well, that, that, that doesn't even make logical sense. So we've got to get past this idea that school should not at times be a struggle or cause stress in the life of our child. And as parents, we need to be able to engage that and say, hey, this is, this is the same lesson you're, you learn here. And when you struggle, it's an opportunity for you to learn to respond positively. And that's, you know, that's not how we look at school these days. But I, I would also want to branch into something else. You know, struggle is not just about chores and responsibilities and even school. Struggle also is about good things. I mean, school's a good thing, but I mean, um, I'll give you an example. <laughs> uh, we, we, we have a, 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 an old boat. We wanted a boat to go to the lake, to go to the ocean in. <clears throat> so we bought a boat for $500. And it's, an, it's a 40-some-year-old boat that we gutted to the bare hole and rebuilt. Now, my wife, because this took a couple months each summer for about three years, my wife nicknamed it the other woman for a while, which we all thought was funny. Uh, <laughs> but the boat ended up being something that my son and daughter learned how to use an aircraft riveter, uh, learned how to weld, learned how to do woodwork, learned how to paint. I mean, all of these things they learned to do, and in essence, those were a struggle. They took time. They took effort. And the end result of that, of course, is something that our family now enjoys. So struggle can even be applied and should be applied with healthy things, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Sure. Sure. Now, you mentioned that you're a parent, obviously, um, a board member of a classical school, um, and as a counselor to families and children in particular, you see you know, really all of those sides of this in the school dynamic. So um, 
mm-hmm. for parents navigating that parent teacher dynamic, um, what, what other advice do you have? You, you already mentioned some great things about, uh, having the, the right expectations, um, as far as, um, your children struggling with school, your, um, and, uh, not making all A's and so on, which is really an, mm-hmm. an interesting contradiction, isn't it? You know, I don't want them to struggle, but I want them to make all A's. Um, right. Right. So, but what other advice do you have for parents as they kind of navigate that parent-teacher relationship? Well, I, I tell parents on the front end, know your school. If if you understand that two thirds of your school-aged child's life is spent in their school, then you need to know the school. Mm-hmm. And so, I tell parents to number one, be involved, and number two, be involved in a supportive way. You know, get involved in a way where you're there saying, I, number one, support the authority of the school, support the, the leadership and the uh, authority, in essence, of the teacher. But I'm also involved. I'm involved, so I know what's going on. And it's amazing when a parent is aware of, as an example, curriculum uh, or scope and sequence, uh, you know, those sorts of things in a school system. Then when a child comes home and complains about things, the parent can say, well, I know why you're doing that. And that's okay. That's good for you. <laughs> because they really do know it. Uh, so I think a parent needs to be involved in that sense. Um, I think the second thing is to realize that your children are going to naturally push back against anything that's difficult in the school system at some point or the other. I mean, there are definitely some grades where children perceive it's more fun than anything else. But as a child is moving through the grades, if they are in a school that, you know, I would say is a good school, they will push back at times. They will be frustrated at times. They will be upset at times. And our job with that is not to criticize or condemn the school, the kid, the work. Our first job with that is to empathize with our children. And empathy is different than sympathy. And it's, it's really important to know the distinction. Sympathy is poor baby. You know, I'm so sorry you're the victim. Um, that is not helpful, unfortunately. That's what a lot of what we do. But empathy says... I hear you and I get it. You know, I'm acknowledging truthfully, this is hard stuff. You know, Latin can be really tough. Calculus can be hard. I get it. But then providing the truth that says, but you know what? You can do this. You can struggle well with this. You can learn this. And I'm not so much concerned about the grades you get. I'm more concerned about how you engage the struggle. And when kids hear that, it also helps them realize this is not about a grade. This is about a process or an experience. And, and, right. and that totally changes what school is. And it changes it from outcome-based, I have to get an A, to process-based. I want to make sure that I have a good work ethic. I want to make sure that I learn to engage academic struggles well. And, and parents, when they have that view, take a different role then or a different um, – approach to teachers. They see te- teachers as partners in the same journey with them. So that, those are two things. I think the perspective for parents right. about that is usually pretty helpful. That's that's so helpful. Thank you. Uh, um, but I, I want to bring in another um, group of our listeners in particular, because at, sure. at, at Cersei, we have uh, lots of teachers, headmasters, um, board members, and uh, and um and so on that that listen and are a part of our our orbit, if you will. Um, but we also have mm-hmm. a lot of homeschooling parents. Um, oh, sure. And so you have some different dynamics there, of course. Um, so homeschooling parents are they oversee their children with chores, with schoolwork, and with mm-hmm. you know all the other aspects of life as well. Um, in in other words, and this is not to say that teachers that day school teachers are not tired, but homeschooling parents. Um, are they're often trying to build sturdy children from just a state of exhaustion, you know, um, oh, per- sure. particularly, um, decision fatigue. Right. Um, so, yeah. um, what would you say to homeschooling parents in particular, as they are, they're striving to help their children with these, these struggles and, and growing to be sturdy children? Sure, sure. Well, in the Roanoke area, we have a couple um, very large and thriving homeschool networks in this area, and I deal with a lot of homeschool families. Um, so I think your question is is right on target. You know, that 
a teacher in a school, um, once they are done engaging a child academically, which can be at times, it's very, very joyful at times, but also it's a struggle. Sure. But at 2.30 or 3 o'clock or 3.30, they get to send those children away. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, yeah. and... And, and they also don't have to get them up and get them and, and make sure they're ready for school and feed. I mean, it's mm-hmm. you know it's very segmented, and so when you have a homeschool family, mom or dad or both, uh, a lot of times it's almost as if the process is never ending, and and it, it, there is a lot of fatigue. And so one of the things I give you two or three things I tell parents who homeschool: um, the first is have a clear structure and routine for the schooling part of the day. One of the mistakes I sometimes see happen, and I, and I hear it in the language, parents will say, well, you know, one of the benefits of homeschool is the flexibility we have. And that is true, but sometimes that blurs into the world if we really don't have a clear routine. Hmm. You know, because we can do things on a whim, we often end up allowing that to run us more than a structure or a routine. And, and that causes unbelievable fatigue because then you end up always playing catch up. Um, so one of the first things I tell them is make sure you have a clear structure and routine that defines a school day for your child. You know, make sure they understand the start point and the end point. And even though that seems kind of obvious, it's amazing how many times that is a struggle for a family. Uh, and the second thing is I tell them because you are in the teacher mode Sometimes you have a hard time getting out of that mode when you're just dealing with life with your child, but you need to. You know, in the, in the teaching world, there really is a little more hovering or oversight or whatever. But in the parenting world, that can be very damaging. You know, we turn into micromanagers. Mm-hmm. And, and we really have got to work hard at separating what's, you know, academic in nature from the rest of life. It's healthy for the child. It's healthy for the parent. So I often tell parents, make sure that you're really not hovering or being an overseer of everything. Make sure your child uh, has a lot of independence, whether that's both during the school day, meaning when assignments are given or whatever the curriculum is, that there are times when you are not directly present, that you're allowing them to struggle and to work with some things on their own. And then there is a time for your presence or your help or your encouragement. Uh, But then when the school day is over, make sure you clearly transition them into the other parts of life, whether that is chores, whether that is fun, whether that is is activities. Uh, And then the third thing is, and I often see this with homeschool parents, I really see this with all parents, but especially in homeschool is this notion of overcommitment. As I had one homeschool parent tell me recently, she said, the mistake I made is because our schedule can be so flexible, I assumed I could have my child involved in more things than when they were in a regular school setting. And, and the mistake is then they were running crazy constantly. Hmm. You know, so it's, it's really making sure that just because you have flexibility, uh, and in many cases, homeschooling day can be shorter because you've eliminated some of the parts of the school day that aren't directly academic. Um, mm-hmm. Don't offset that by putting more extracurriculars in the day. You know, make sure you get really good at running a homeschool uh, process for a period of time, then evaluate what there really is room for in the day of the life of that child. Right. Those are some of the things that I see that homeschool families struggle with. Yeah, and I I hope that uh, that those things, it seems like those things would certainly help with that state of exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, instead of having to make a million decisions, a lot of those decisions are are made for you by the routine and the structure of the day right. uh, once established. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. Now let's, uh, let's switch gears uh, because when it comes to parenting nowadays, uh, we would, we would really be remiss if we neglected to mention the 800 pound neon elephant in the room. Um, and that is, <laughs> <laughs> that is technology, right? Sure. Um, sure. So let's talk about just in, I know it's a huge subject, probably could be a whole other podcast on its own, but let's talk about, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly with this. What do parents need to know when it comes to their children and technology? Wow. Well, that's an easy one, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Good Um, luck with that. You've got 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I got 10 minutes. Let me see what I can, where I can go with that. Well, 
let me tell you how I get into that. When parents come into my office, one of the key uh, elements I give them when they're trying to rework things in their family, uh, I give them three or four key areas, and one of them is limit technology. So let me give you the 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 initial lens I try to give them uh, about that, and that may, that may help shape this and maybe even a future conversation. Um, you know, we cannot find, there is not research that supports the idea that there is any regular ongoing use of technology that's necessary for someone under the age of 15 or 16. You know, so we right off the bat, we have to lay it out there that it's not necessary. You know, it, it is not necessary for a child to learn to use a smartphone in the fourth grade. Uh, it is not necessary for every student in high school to have their own laptop. Now, I get pushback from that, but the reality is it's not necessary. You know, if we took someone from 100 years ago and time warped them to here right now in one week, they could learn to drive a car. They could learn to surf the Internet. They'd learn how to work Windows. They would have a social media account. They'd be on Twitter, Facebook. They could do all that in one week. And so the notion that technology is necessarily some major advantage to us to, to master really early in life, we don't have evidence that truly supports that. And some parents, that's where they get hung up. They think, well, my child is going to be behind if they don't have this level of, um, uh, of integration with technology. The problem is it's just not true. You know, so we have to accept that right off the bat. And there are many examples I give folks, you know, being on a school board, I'll give you one. Uh, there was a, a conversation one time at a school board meeting several years ago about, uh, you know, laptops and iPads in the school system and everything. Uh, and, and so I called several universities and colleges, a couple locally here uh, in Roanoke. I called uh, MIT, Duke, UNC, I mean, up and down the East Coast. Um, and my question was, I either asked, uh, I either got um, uh, some of the folks that, uh, I forget the name of the admissions in the admissions department or in the computer technologies department mm -hmm. at the school. And my question was, you know, what really do our students need to know uh, to be able to come there and function well in whatever major they have in using technology? And the funniest comment I got was a guy from MIT. And you'd think MIT, he's really going to lay it out for me. And his comment to me was, well, they got to know how to turn it on. And they pretty much need to know how to click on stuff. And I laughed and he laughed. And he said, what people do not understand is there are two different worlds that exist. There's the public world of technology and then, and then more of the research, um, educational world of technology. He said, anything these children need to know how to do when they come to college we will teach them quickly and they will learn it quickly about how to navigate with technology that's necessary for their education. And he said, and, and technology changes so fast that if there's someone who is interested in, in, interested in coding and things like that, they just need to have a class or two of that exposure when they're younger, because once we get to once they get to college, it moves so quickly, they're going to be learning all new information mm -hmm. constantly. Mm -hmm. And it was just refreshing to hear from someone in that world that his comment was, well, they kind of got to know how to turn it on. Right, right. And in a, converse, and in a conversation with this fellow, he said, yeah, he said all this notion was social media and everything. That, has, that does not translate to functioning in the academic world at all. So that's one of the many examples of why we have to realize it's, it's not a necessity the way we approach it. Mm -hmm. um, some of the other things I talk to parents about is this. I, you know, heavy use of social media, and you can look this up all over the place. I mean, you can Google this and look at the studies. Heavy use of social media increases depression and anxiety in teenagers and adults. Social media, and it's funny the name is social media, uh, mm. decreases social development. And what I mean by social development is the ability to engage others and have meaningful conversations and relationships. You know, so the more we rely on technology for what we call social media, the more difficulty we actually have in dealing with real people. Another thing we look at, if we look at attention, there are several studies that have been coming out in the last several years um, on attention span. And, and the first part of that is if we look at electronic gaming, electronic gaming, um, video gaming, 
absolutely increases a certain part of attention. It's the ability to pay attention to random stimulus. And it makes sense. You know, if somebody's going to shoot at you from behind a building and somebody else is going to throw something at you from behind a tree, you're paying attention to all this random stimulus and you're creating this attention ability uh, with this constant stimulation. The problem is that doesn't translate to the learning environment. That attention ability doesn't translate in a useful way to the academic world. Now, while that attention ability is growing, another one is shrinking. And that's the ability to stay on task when unstimulated, the ability to put up with boredom, the ability to pay attention when something might be a little dry. Well, guess what? That's a lot of education, not to pick on teachers, but there are certain subjects that are just dry, sometimes boring, where we really just have to stay on task. Mm -hmm. And so in just those areas, we see that relying on technology can have negative effects. And so I tell parents, look at this in a way that says, you know, what type of technology use do I want my children to have? You know, do I want my child to have a cell phone when they start driving? Okay, I, that makes sense. That way you can find them. You know, do I think it's healthy for my child to learn how to use a laptop the last couple of years of high school, especially as it relates to uh, school assignments and, and things like that? Sure, that sounds great. But beyond those arenas, I recommend to parents that you take a break from so much technology to see what effect it has on your family. And if they will do that, then I don't have to necessarily argue any other points with them because they begin seeing different things with their children. Hmm. I, I think of one kid that came to see me, and, and, and right now I think it's the Kaiser Family Foundation. They're, I think they're reporting the average screen time technology use a day for the average kid is seven and a half hours a day. That's staggering. No. So wow. I, have a, I have a young kid. Oh, yeah, that's staggering. So I have a young kid that comes to see me, and this is probably last year, and he was playing video games nonstop. Now, he was a great student, but he would come home and play video games basically until bedtime, and he would play video games all weekend. And what ended up occurring is he had difficulty dealing with anyone in his life because he could not relate to them, yet he was normal. So parents finally bit the bullet and just removed the video games. And after about two weeks of just, you know, nightmarish behavior, the mom came in and she said, it's unbelievable. We actually have our child back. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, he talks to us. He looks at us in our eyes. He mm -hmm. has conversations. He's interested in playing cards with us. He's interested in going outside and, and doing things with the neighbors. They had to break the cycle he was in because he was constantly stimulated. And they had to break it in a very harsh way for him to realize, wait a minute, I need to initiate things with others. Mm -hmm. I need to take part in life because in, in all reality, what I've been doing is taking part and investing in fantasy. Wow. Well, and so it, that's that's just touching the eight hundred pound elephant, but right, right. You know, it's something we have to address in our families. But and it sounds like that there's a, a very close connection between the the role that technology can play, or some of the the effects of uh, dependence on technology, and that whole idea of struggle and the need for struggle. Right. Uh, you know, technology gives this constant stimulation, or, or I should say, things like social media. Um, can give this constant stimulation, this constant interaction that sort of mimics, um, but but really doesn't doesn't translate into actual interaction with people. I mean, dealing with right. actual people or relationships are difficult. They're hard. They're messy. You right. know, um, everyone doesn't conform to your needs or um, uh, or or your conveniences, uh, they don't fit your schedule and ideas and so on. So th that, um, that sort of creates a barrier when we live in that kind of virtual world to yeah. learning how yeah. to struggle through responsibilities and relationships and, and so on. So that, um, that's interesting that there is that, that overlap there. Um, yeah, well, in t and technology gives us, it gives us this idea that everything is immediate mm -hmm. and, and if anything, it really gets in the way of what we know to be building healthy relationships. I'll give one simple example. I was giving a talk, um, I don't know, a few months ago somewhere, and, and 
several hundred people in the room, and I had about 100 teenagers right in the front of the room. And I asked the question, I said, what's the number one way to make a teenage girl crazy? And a teenage girl raised her hand in the front row, and I said, how? And she said, don't respond to her text message. Mm. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's unbelievable. It's like unbelievable. I mean, that, that we get so caught up in what technology has set in motion mm-hmm. that we will we will be so negatively emotionally affected when someone someone doesn't respond in nine seconds to a text message. It's just unbelievable. And I have stories and stories and stories like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the effects of it really are frightening. Um, now I, whenever a teacher would give an assignment when I was, uh, in class, they give an assignment where you could sort of pick something to write about. Um, you know, the topic wasn't assigned. I always found that there was this moment of, oh, that'll be fun. I can write about whatever I want. And then, great, now I've got to come up with something to write about. So sometimes those <laughs> o- open-ended assignments are more difficult, but I'm going to give you one here at the end um, anyway. Sure. So I'm going to be a, a terrible sure. teacher here for a minute. Um, That's okay. One, <laughs> one last question before we sign off here. And that is, any other practical pointers for parents that you want to offer i mean you're so we have you being recorded here uh we have you for a limited amount of time and we want to take advantage of all the experience that you have so any last practical pointers for parents you want to leave us with yeah absolutely i'll give you two or three And, and these are two or three things that when i finish conferences i i always attempt to share with parents i say well if you don't remember anything else remember a few of these things uh, one of them is uh, a phrase I came up with. It's called no parenting above a five. And I use the analogy of a Richter scale of earthquakes. Uh, my understanding is it goes zero to 10. Uh, and, you know, when it's a one or two, you don't really know what's happening. When it's a three or four, you think a big truck drove by, something's rumbling. But when an earthquake hits a five, stuff starts falling off the wall. And we, just like our children, struggle with our emotions running us. And so this is our emotional Richter scale. Mm -hmm. And I tell parents, do not parent above a five, because if you parent at at basically above a five, you will do damage. You will either do damage in how you deal with your child, you'll do damage to your uh, authority, you'll do, do damage to your word, but in some way you will do damage. There is no situation, unless it is life threatening, that you have to immediately deal with. You know, and, and sometimes I get pushback from the world of psychology. Parents will say, well, but, you know, if we don't deal with it in the moment, then our child will never learn. And I say, well, wait a minute, that's, that's, that's a false statement. You know, that's a falsehood in psychology. If it's a real problem, it will show up again. Hmm. You'll have another shot at it. And if it's not a real problem, which is a good chunk of things that happen in childhood, we see them for a short time and they go away on their own, then it will never happen again, which means you didn't really have to deal with it. The key is do not engage when you are being run by your your emotional state. And that alone frees parents because most of the things that we feel horrible about that we did with our children, we did in anger. It's true of all of us. And, and, you know, I, I basically I'm giving per- permission to parents. When you are that jacked up, walk away. I don't care if it takes an hour, a day, or a week later. Do not engage in the moment of that. And it's amazing the parents that say, oh, my gosh, if I just change that, it changes everything. So that's one. That's one I would give. The second is this. Um, you know, the, the first real directions to parents in Scripture comes out of Deuteronomy 6, you know, pressing these truths upon your children. But the first real command to parents about parenting is in Genesis. It's become one, be unified. Hmm. And nowhere in Scripture after that do you see where God says, okay, for this task, you can operate on your own. You know, we don't see that. And so parents are to be unified with their children. The work that parents can do to be playing off the same sheet music for their kids, that effort removes so many barriers. And that's one of the biggest things that I deal with in my office on a regular basis is parents operating on two different, you know, two different sets of standards or two different approaches or one undercuts the other. And I tell them it's not about whether you what you decide on is is the best or the right thing to do. It's that you do it together, you implement it together, because if it messes something up, then you mess it up together. 
you recover, you come back and you make a change. But we are called to be operating as one when we parent our children. And that is, that's a huge struggle today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the third thing I would, I would tell parents is this. A term I give them is, is the attitude to have with your children when they complain. And I call it pleasant indifference. You're pleasant, but you're kind of indifferent to their struggle because you realize it's really not that big a deal. And, and when you can learn to have that approach with your kids, they start learning that it really isn't that big a deal either. Yeah, they don't like it. Yeah, it's a frustration. But they realize it's not that big a deal. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the response I give them is this. I say, you know, look, when your child comes to you and complains, and we mentioned this earlier about another thing, um, show empathy. You know, if I tell my son, you need to mow the lawn, and it's 90 degrees out, but the lawn's really tall, he's going to go, oh. And I can, mm-hmm. instead of fussing at him, don't you dare grump, you know. I can say, man, I get it. I wouldn't want to mow the lawn either. So I show empathy. I understand why he isn't loving the idea, but then I, I just encourage him and give him truth. You know, you'll be fine. It's okay. It still needs to be done. And when we can have that approach to our kids about things that they grunt and grumble about, we don't have so much conflict. Mm-hmm. You know, too many times we hear, and we hear it either in psychology, we hear it in the church, that, you know, a child should never grumble. You know, they should always joyfully be obedient. Well, I, I'm not sure what brokenness means then. I think I'm missing something, because if we are broken individuals, we are always at times going to struggle with things that we don't like or feel good about. We have to allow our children to not always like everything we're asking of them. Now, we still require them to be obedient. We still require them to follow through. But it's okay if they don't love it. You know, I, I think about the story in the New Testament with the landowner and the two workers, and he's going, I think he's going out of town, and he says, you know, you need to do this. And the first worker says, oh, I don't want to do that. That's horrible. And the second worker says, yes, sir, yes, sir. Well, he comes back, and the one who complained did everything he was told to do. Mm-hmm. The one who said he would did it didn't do any of it. Well, which one got praised? The one who mm-hmm. ultimately was obedient, even though he didn't want to do it. You know, so we've got to not make a big deal about the grunting and grumbling. So, if it, so the three things I would really lay out there as things to keep in mind would be those. No parenting above a five. Keep our own emotional stuff in check. Realize that we at times are going to struggle as well. So we need to take a break from parenting in that moment. Um, be unified and get unified before we decide we're going to weigh in on things. You know, even if our child does something that we think is just horrible, that just means take more time to figure out what we're going to do about it together, not not jumping in too quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the third thing uh, is pleasant indifference. You know, it's okay for children to grumble a little bit. Empathize with them and then move ahead. They'll respond much better to it because they'll realize that we kind of get it. So those are the three things I'd leave you with. All right. Well, Keith McCurdy, thank you so much for joining us again. This is it's good stuff. Very, very helpful advice for parents um, in all different contexts. So Thank you for taking time to join us again today. Well, thank you, and it's been a pleasure. Well, uh, I'm Brian Phillips signing off on this episode of The Commons. So for myself and my guest, Keith McCurdy, thank you for listening, and we will catch you next time. Have a great day. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.